this whole f- shoe print thing is just to me extremely extremely flawed i guess the only you know a really good saving grace is that whatever they did get obviously that excludes jamie snow files season two episode 26 rage against the crime scene q a the mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. If you enjoy Snow Files, please give us a quick rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This will help Jamie's story get out to the masses. Visit snowfiles.net and click on Rate Show. And while you're there, leave us a voicemail that may be used on the show and check out our cool Snowfiles merch. Thanks for joining us for this week's Q&A segment, where we dodge rabbit holes, slay inaccuracies, and untangle this web one fiber at a time. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Snow Files, episode 26, Rage Against the Crime Scene Q&A. This is Tam, Alex, and Leslie, and we are going to get this Q&A going. We want to start with a listener question from Ellen No. Does the number of reports that have been turned over to Jamie or admitted to existing match the number of people that should have reported that worked the crime scene? It seems that at least the reporting of the crime scene investigation was very short and sweet, but I wonder if the investigation might have been more extensive because a lot of people were there and managed to find and report pennies outside and process cars, but not blood on shelves nor cash registers. Shouldn't there be more reports? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, We had Ed Kalal, Randy McKinley, who had a very short report, also had Williams and Pilo's reports, which we reviewed on episode 25. There were many reports taken. For this episode, we only focused on the reports related to the forensics. So that might be why there, you know, it seems like there wasn't very much information, but that's literally we focused on everything that the the, the crime scene technicians gathered. Um, the blood underneath the counter was only only reported by Kalal and the EMT reports. On that EMT report, there's just a little short paragraph at the bottom of it that says that there was blood under the counter. So there are many reports, many police reports from officers that were on the scene, but those are the only forensics reports that we have. So Tam, one interesting thing that wasn't pointed out in the episode as not tested that Ellen brought up were the pennies. And we had stated that Ed Cowell said there were two pennies observed on the east side of the dumpster, two pennies on the drive near the center set of gas pumps, and one penny on the drive at the southwest entrance to the station. So what happened to these pennies? They could have been changed that were dropped out of the cash drawer that was stolen. So were they ever swabbed for DNA? And have you ever seen them entered into evidence? 
Well, as far as I know, the pennies were observed and not entered into evidence. I don't believe that they were even photographed, much less swabbed. But I also don't believe we have all of the photographs. So that's, you know, that's kind of a, a, a question mark. But uh, certainly they weren't swabbed. I don't even think that they were looking. I, I know DNA came out in 85, I think. But still, this was very early in the DNA days uh, where they weren't really using it um, in court very much. It was, I remember it being hard to explain them saying that. How, how do you convince a jury about the DNA? And now it's so funny. These years later, it's all about the DNA. Well, what I can't believe they didn't collect the pennies. And, you know, they better be in that evidence box because that could be some money that was stolen from the holdup. So it's, you know, it's crazy to me that they might just write them off and be like, oh, they're just pennies that were laying around outside. But those could have potentially been really important. And you could tell by sediment on them how long they had been sitting there for, you know? So you could have taken footprints near those pennies too. If you think that they were, that was a track. Um, So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just crazy. So there's not even, um, I mean, they're, they're not listed in the evidence, you know, that they said specifically that night that they turned over. But we have other things that weren't listed either. So we'll cover those later. So who knows? Yeah. I mentioned that there was a large knot on his forehead and then five one inch bruises on his right forearm. So I wanted to see those better. And I noticed we only had two photos of Bill and none of them showed those injuries. So have you seen them? And is there anything more documented about those elsewhere? I've not seen any pictures of, of that injury uh, only the reference in the autopsy report. I mean, I, I bet there are more pictures though, because Kalal mentioned in his report that additional photographs were taken of the victim and the victim's wounds. He said that specifically. So uh, I don't think that we have all of the pictures. Is that something you can get with a FOIA request? That's kind of hard, especially pictures of the body. But I don't know. That's a good question. I think that that's something that we should explore. Yeah, because that, you know, we're going to get into if there was a struggle and things like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, we want you know, that's important to know. And just like with the pennies, it's just a little crazy that it, there's not more documented it like Ellen pointed out. I know you picked up on a few things in this episode that we needed to elaborate on. Some things old time listeners might have too. What, what were a few of those, Leslie? Well, the first big thing I think is sticking out to everybody is the Monte Carlo. So that was stolen the night of the crime and found across town. And we just need to remind everybody that that was presented by Bob Ruff on truth and justice episode 20 season seven. Um, And he eventually solved it later that season when a witness called him personally to admit that as a teen, he actually participated in stealing that car for a joyride. And because of the episode, he turned himself into the police. So those group of teens were not involved in the crime, um, you know, according to this new information. So the car was likely unrelated, but, you know, it was still a component to the investigation that just went unsolved for 30 years. 
Yeah, that was really cool. That was really cool. And that was really weird when all of that came about. It would have been nice, though, if we would have had to, you know, if that car would have led to the actual perpetrator of this crime. So did you find anything else in the docs that might be new to listeners? Yeah, I was really interested in this newbie CSI tech, uh, Sergeant Randy McKinley. And I was reading his transcripts and noticed that um, he says he wasn't in training during the crime scene investigation. He was already trained. Pitzel kind of asked him, oh, so were you in training that night? And he's like, no, I was already trained. Ed Cowell was his senior with 11 years CSI experience already. So he took charge, according to Randy. And Randy goes on to elaborate that he had been an officer for seven years by this time. But I'm not sure, you know, how many weeks or months he was already in CSI for. Um, And then Ed went on to testify that he was training Randy that night, but then later said he was probably breaking him in. So I think that Ed is just misremembering or talking about him supervising this new person as job training where it's, you know, a little bit of both where he's just, he's already officially trained, but he's, you know, showing him the ropes. And also Randy testified at trial that he took the static lifts at the direction of Ed after Ed arrived and after Ed photographed the outside and inside of the station. Um, And Ed confirmed that as well. So he didn't start without Ed being there. He seemed to wait around for him anyway, even though he was already trained. And they both described um, in detail to the jury what a static lift is. And it was really interesting to learn about. Ed had said, quote, electrostatic lifting is we reverse the process sucking chemical or dust off the floor. What we use is mylar that you use to get mylar that you covered your windows with. We get sheets of two by four sheets. We have a static lifter. We attach that to the mylar. We run it over and reverse the process. It sucks all the dust off the floor on the back side of the mylar. Then we turn over the mylar over and photograph the footwear impressions to a one-to-one camera. They have them blowed up to one-to-one to compare to any footprints that we may have found. If we have a suspect, we have something to compare it to. He goes on to explain that what they suck up onto the mylar is the real dirt on the floor. It's not a dust, like a fingerprint. It's the real debris print that's attracted by static to the mylar. And then they carefully photograph the mylar. He explained that although multiple people can have the same exact shoe, the patterns can be unique to each wearer as they'll wear down the treads differently depending on their own unique step patterns. And Randy testified that no positive marks on the shoes were found when compared to various items in the crime lab, including Jamie's high top Converse shoes. So I looked at the photos of the actual lifts that we have, and we'll post them for you to see too. They were surprising to me. They look like dirty, wet shoe prints you'd wipe off the floor, like if someone just comes in your house after like a rainy day. And one of them looked pretty awful. It was not of good quality compared to the other one. So Frank Pitzel, Jamie's defense attorney, actually got Ed to admit on the stand that the bad one was due to him using a flash under the station's fluorescent light. So we have one bad one and one good one. And Ed went on to admit to Pitzel that with all the sampling of the storeroom floor, he couldn't say how many people were in the store based off the shoe prints, and he couldn't even find any patterns suggesting that the same person came in the store more than once the entire day. And while that's not really reliable, if you've only got two footprints and we know the store was busy and Bill had friends in there that day too. So (laughs) 
this whole f- shoe print thing is just to me extremely extremely flawed i guess the only you know a really good saving grace is that whatever they did get obviously that excludes jamie i believe there were more shoe lifts taken as well as fingerprints but we're going to cover that in a separate episode we're going to do a whole episode on the lifts and the prints but a few things Gloria Luna, who also worked at the location at the same time as Bill, recall Bill had covered her shift for the Easter holiday. While she stated that the store was not very busy at all, especially on holidays. And this may be more related to fingerprints, but Stephen Hill, who worked the shift before Bill that day, stated that part of their work process was to wipe things down and clean the windows at the end of their shift. And that he did all of that on the day of the crime before Bill came on his shift. I'm also thinking that they also had to mop, sweep him off the floor too. So that, that would make a difference in, you know, the prints inside the store being, being relevant. Now, Leslie did some research on the electrostatic lift technology. And, and found out that they're still the first step used to collect footprints. But if that doesn't work well, there's other techniques available like gel lifts. The reason why the second print was so awful is because in order to visualize the lifted impression, the mylar sheets has to be brought into a dark room, examined with a high intensity light source held at an oblique angle to the surface of the lift. So if you're not angling the light, or in this case, the flash correctly, and also allowing the overhead fluorescent light to shine down, then as Ed admitted, you're going to ruin the photo. He said he had 11 years in CSI, so why did he do that? He also talked a lot about the difference between fingerprinting with powder and getting lifts. But if the static lift method doesn't work, you can use an adhesive and a dust coating, just like fingerprints, to collect the shoe print. He also said he didn't consider taking lifts from outside the room due to the weather. He said there had been no rain, no snow, no mud, um, no nowhere really to look to find shoe wear impressions. And he also stated he did not look for shoe impressions in the bathroom. So this whole shoe print method, yeah, yeah it was wild. And it's funny that he directed it this way as being the most senior CSI person on the scene. Now, Melinda Wargacki teaches crime scene investigation and had written a grant to get an electrostatic dust print lifter for, for a classroom. And she commented in the Snowfalls group on Facebook that she did not realize until this episode that they used an electrostatic dust print lifter for shoe prints. In general, very rarely do I even hear static prints being lifted at crime scenes. The first battery-operated prototype was not developed until 1981. So really, the technology was fairly new. And she says, I, I bet they were expensive too. Today, they cost $8.95. She says, I only bring this up because they lifted these static prints, pretty smart in my opinion, but they did not lift fingerprints in some of the most logical locations that the suspect would have touched. There's just no rhyme or reason to the things that were done. I tried researching how common it is for police departments slash CSIs to conduct electrostatic dust print lifting at scenes, but I could not find any data on that. I I just was interested in knowing this. 
And uh, we want to thank you for your comment, Melinda. And, and as I said, we haven't covered everything lifted yet, but this episode was only the evidence turned in at the time, according to the reports that we saw. I mean, there's a lot more to this story. Yeah, and the shoe prints are just like a great example, you know, that even, you know, Melinda, a listener who's a teacher and has some experience with this, um, this static lifter, she was able to, you know, hear just from the episode and be like, wait, you use the static lifter and there's something wrong with the way you got all the footprints, but, you know, what's going on with the fingerprints? And, it, you know, that's just such a great conclusion she came to as well, because when Ed's on the right. stand, he's... <laughs> like spending so much of his time explaining to the jury the difference between fingerprints and static lifts, like as if it really actually makes a difference, but it's just like you didn't do a good job on either of those. So, you know, if it, it's just, you know, it's a good thing to hear that other people are noticing this too. And, you know, I'm glad that these shoe prints have kind of enlightened everybody in this episode to how botched this investigation was from the get-go. Absolutely. Hey, y'all. My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm a journalist and producer, and I'm the host of Unjust and Unsolved. And I want to tell you about my new podcast, Murder in Alliance, a real-time investigation into a case that is so bonkers, it's hard to wrap your head around. Everyone in this town seems to have some kind of secret or interest in this victim, whether it be drugs, sex, or both. I'll be teaming up with Jason Baldwin from the West Memphis Three and his organization, Proclaim Justice, to reinvestigate this murder from the ground in Ohio. If he slit her throat right here, there would be more blood on that on that sofa. We track down witnesses. You guys have got to understand what's at risk for me here. And even uncover massive police corruption. There were two officers that felt like their brotherhood, their staff, that could have been involved. This is the case of David Thorne and the murder of Yvonne Lane. Find and follow Murder and Alliance wherever you get your podcasts. So Randy's testimony, the junior CSI attack, that got more interesting after this whole shoe print debacle. So as a CSI tech, he was also the photographer during the lineup and he testified about Jamie number six, not wanting to stand up in that lineup when he was asked about it on the stand. So this is that infamous picture of young Jamie with shoulder length blonde hair crossing his arms. And interestingly, Randy reported that he noticed no physical reaction on Jamie's part. So he's the photographer and he's noticing that Jamie had no physical reaction during the lineup. Now, remember, Crow and the other detectives accused Jamie of physically resisting to the point that they dragged him down the hall or by his elbow or something and said that they were going to cuff him if he didn't stand there. So Randy says he didn't notice that and that Jamie willingly participated. And he was asked about this multiple times. So that was a really interesting point that goes against the prosecution. And it makes me think that he's a credible witness and he's more more credible than Ed, I think, because he's being very precise and very exact, whereas Ed is, you know, can't tell you if when he trained him and he's admitting that he didn't take pictures of the shoe lifts the right way. And, you know, he's kind of just flying by the seat of his pants during the, the testimony, in my opinion. Maybe he thinks he did a really good job, but 
um, I thought, you know, it was interesting that Randy was a lot more specific. So Randy also um, did a good job being so specific too, and not succumbing to the pressures of illusions and inference to the jury. And when Frank Pitzel asked him about the stool, if in fact it had been knocked over, as it was always described in crime scene photos of the knocked over stool, Frank's like, so how do you know that stool is knocked over? And Randy admits, well, we don't know the stool was laying down when we walked in, so I can't confirm it was knocked over by anyone. So I'm thinking, well, the reason why now you can't confirm it was, wasn't knocked over by anybody is because you didn't take any static lifts behind there. And they did a horrible job swabbing for blood. So I know with crime scene investigating, you can prove now if somebody has knocked something over before or after the crime by the blood spatter pattern. I mean, if there's blood on the stool, obviously, you know, depending on the angle, it fell before the blood spattered it. If there's blood under the stool and not on the stool, then it fell after. Um, so they didn't, there's no notes about that and no shoe prints back there. So I guess we'll get into this next week when we talk about the scuffle though, right, Tam? Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely get into, get into all of this. And, you know, that stool's been bothering me ever since it came back up <laughs> because it's, first of all, I don't think there was blood spatter anywhere. There was just a little bit of blood on the floor and on the shelf. And and what's strange about that is that Bill Little bled internally. He did not bleed out. Remember, they didn't even know that he was shot until they cut open his shirt, then saw the bullet wounds. So there was no, and in the autopsy report, everything says, you know, that he bled internally. And that's the question about that blood where that blood came from. And yeah, we're absolutely going to cover that next week. But I also wanted to mention where you're talking about Randy being more credible. I mean, his, his police report, his crime scene technician police report was a paragraph. And if you're right about Randy, it's really unfortunate that he didn't precisely document everything. I guess that would have been up to Kalal to do. But that's you know, a really good point though, because it seems like he's more precise and more insistent and willing to he's willing to go against the prosecution to tell the truth. Um so it just would have been like that's a really good point that if he had taken the time to write more than a paragraph, maybe we'd have a lot more answers right now because he does seem to be insistent on the information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. See, I don't I don't know if I buy that or not. They both said different things. So who's not telling the truth? You know, is is Kalal trying to make himself pump pump himself up much the same way Williams did sometimes by saying we arrived, we arrived at the same time. Yeah. You know, he told somebody that he was he must have told somebody that he was a first officer on the scene because that was the report that Kalal got. So. I mean, you just don't, all we have is our statements and it's really up to us as listeners and researchers to determine who's telling the truth. But sometimes you can't tell if it's just a well, statement. That's interesting because the reason why I kind of read more and like went down this, um, this pathway with all these details about that is because 
there was some like really weird ass dynamic with Ed and Frank Pitzel during the cross-examination that gives you a little glimpse into the tone at trial that day and the kind of person that Ed is. And, you know, that's just kind of what tipped me off to, you know, to pay a little bit more attention to what he was saying um, and why I thought that maybe Randy might be more credible as a new person. And so I want to share some of that with you. Um, So when he first gets on the stand, Frank Pitzel says to him, which, you know, in Frank Pitzel fashion, where he immediately tries to embarrass somebody he doesn't like, he goes, excuse me, how would you like to be addressed? You're a retired officer, trooper. And Cowell says, trooper, you can call me trooper or whatever, sir. So Frank goes, I will call you trooper. Trooper, (laughs) what is or was States Exhibit 177? And then gets into questioning him. And for the rest of the trial, he's like, trooper (laughs) and you know that just had me laughing like you tam because it's like um when uh uh, detective thomas was not a detective anymore when he like quit the police thing he was like so you're not a detective anymore right so i'll just call you officer right (laughs) and that's what he did so you know that made me laugh so this goes on for the rest of the child you can tell that um (laughs) Ed was like picking up on what a jerk Frank is. So um, Frank later says to him during like introducing him, he goes, now you said to us when you started that you are a semi-bro-pass fisherman. Is that right? And he says, yes, sir. I travel the country fishing. He goes, are you any good at it? He goes, once in a while, sir. So he goes, you support yourself by your winnings from tournaments? And he goes, not last year, but the year before, yes. So Frank goes, I have heard over the years that fishermen tell a lot of tales. You haven't told us any tales today. And Ed goes, no, just like lawyers. (laughs) So that was like, that was funny to me. And then this little dynamic continues to, to right when he's allowed to get off the stand. And, you know, Frank is hammering him about the shoe prints and the fingerprints and, you know, why he did such a shoddy job so he asks ed he says in other words the killer could have left shoe prints in the back room and fingerprints in the back room but we will never know because nobody checked for them is that correct and ed goes yes sir it is and pitzel goes i have nothing else (laughs) right after that he's just let off the stand so i mean that you know that as much as we're laughing and everything like that, it was you know it was also good that Frank picked up on the same things that we did. Um, yeah. But I thought Frank kind of exposed him for you know, like you were saying, Tam. Maybe he was a little grandiose. Maybe he was, you know, overinflating himself. But his work just shows that he's not. So that's where I f- kind of went. I was like, wait a minute, let me go read again and see. Was he really? Tra- was this guy really being trained that night, or is he just acting like the head honcho saying, "Oh, I trained him." So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's how that all came about. But this is just too good to not share with everybody. Join us on our journey to free Jamie Snow by becoming a member of the Snowfiles Patreon team for a flat rate of five bucks a month or set your own monthly rate. All supporters will receive a Snowfiles wristband and a shout out by Jamie on the Snowfiles podcast. Just visit snowfiles.net and click on the Join Our Patreon button. So in this episode, Tam, we asked why the silent alarm button wasn't fingerprinted. And 
Ed had to answer this during his testimony. And he says he fingerprinted around it, but because of the area it's in, he didn't think he could actually fingerprint the button itself. So, Tim, have you seen a photograph of the button? And what is your bullshit radar currently reading right now? Well, I haven't seen a photo of the alarm button. Ed was asked directly if he fingerprinted the button. And his response was, I fingerprinted the area. So he was asked again, well, did you fingerprint the button? And he said, not the button itself, but because of the area, he didn't think it could be printed, which is weird because he just said he fingerprinted the area. So on recross, Bernard lets him tell the story of how the underneath of the counter is rough and it couldn't be printed because of that. But Pitzel comes back on recross and gets Kalal to admit that the button itself was plastic and that he's lifted prints from plastic materials many times. So we don't, why did he not print that button? (laughs) It's just insane to me. Yeah. I mean, and it, and so we're also, there was a blood, there was blood near the button, right? There was blood on the bottom of the shelf. shelf. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, that whole area, I mean, why didn't they just take the shelf with them too? They should have taken the shelf and the button, right? Like that's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And we have no, have no pictures of it. Um, no pictures of that, that blood that was swabbed. Hmm. Which is very misfortunate, but I'm glad that back in 2001, Ed was accountable for this on the stand. And at least we have a record that um, other people asked about it. Now, this was all lost on the jury. So that's really unfortunate, um, but it's not lost on us. So right. this is why Jamie has so many appeals of things that need to be tested. And, you know, we have to get these things done 30 years later. So Tam, can you just tell everybody again, what are those things that he wants retested? Well, for DNA, we're looking at Bill's clothes and the blood, but we're also doing research on whether fingerprint and bullets can be tested for DNA as well. There is some indication that that has been successful. So those are the, those are the things that we want tested as, as far as DNA Wise, Of course, we want the prints run through the FBI database to see if there's any matches and ballistics also on the bullets to see if there's any match to the bullets. Thus far, no luck. So we have in some appeals notes that Jamie's defense asked for the blood swaps to be retested. And in our notes, uh, we have listed that there are serious concerns about the exhibits as they were presented at trial. I think specifically Exhibit 2A. So can you explain those concerns to the audience? That sample, that's a, that's a complex issue um, that, again, we'll cover in depth. We're going to do a whole episode on the blood. But, but there is concern that, that that particular blood sample wasn't the correct blood sample. Basically, when they allowed testing of the sample in 2009, I believe it was in 2009, the technician at the ISP opened the sample and the envelope was empty. So another sample was provided and that's what was tested. 
but it's a very shady situation. We definitely need to flesh out and make sure that we have a good trail on that and see what's going on. Right. So we're going to get into that more, but I mean, this episode, you know, it was short and sweet when we presented it, but as you can see, there's like so much that wasn't done that needs to be talked about. And, you know, it's also, I don't, it's not a good thing, but it's also, I guess, interesting that Jamie's asking for things to be tested for the first time and then for something that went missing to be retested. He's not asking, oh, well, can you test it a different a different way now? Because, you know, blah, 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 blah. No, like we just want these things fixed that were never done in the first place. This isn't splitting hairs here. Right. And but we also want everything tested with the new technologies, the equipment that they have now, the technology that they have now is much more sensitive. So yeah, we also want everything tested, but we also want it tested with the advanced technology um, that can be applied today that was just unavailable 30 years ago. We invite any witness featured on the Snowfiles podcast to come on the show to give their point of view or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential 